Something that you may not know about me is I initially wanted to study cognitive neuroscience when I was 19 years old. I was fascinated by the brain. I was fascinated by psychology. But when I started diving deeper into psychology, I saw that the brain, the the neurophysiology, the way the brain structured and the function of the brain was really where it was at. And everything else was just an expression of what was going on. And I got into that because if you know my story, you know that my biological mother was psychiatrically ill. She was heavily medicated and she was kind of out of control with her brain and and she had to take medication and you know she died tragically uh, in a car accident when I was 14 but I've also seen my grandparents on my dad's side go down from Alzheimer's disease and they became different people and you know that's how powerful the brain is and how powerful keeping our brain healthy how powerful it can be to make sure that mental illness and degenerative cognitive diseases like Alzheimer's either don't happen or or we slow what's happening and even if you don't have any type of disease in your family Becoming the most productive, the most focused that we can be, getting our brains functioning at a high level is important for anyone. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. His name is Adam Ghazali. I first heard him on Tim Ferriss's show, a fantastic interview. But I, as soon as I heard it, I, I wanted to get him on the show. I wanted to ask him more about neuroscience on how we can take our cognition to the next level. And so Adam is going to talk about how he got into neuroscience and what he's doing in his lab at UCSF and how he's using video games to improve cognition. And we go into some detail on things that you can do in your life to improve your brain function so that you're more productive, more alert, more focused. And I even ask him about a hypothesis that I've had about certain types of exercise, and you get to hear his answer on it, and I'm not going to give away the goods. You're going to have to listen to the interview for that, but you're going to learn a ton about what is out there in terms of technology that can improve your brain and ward off mental diseases, and you will also hear about things you can do in your life to improve your brain function that really don't cost you much at all uh, from exercise to nutrition to meditation. So without further ado, I give you the interview on how to improve your brain's performance with Adam Ghazali. Okay, welcome back to the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Head Rice. And Adam Ghazali, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Ted. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about this. I've watched uh, several of your presentations. I've listened to your interview with Tim Ferriss and uh, really excited about today. And for the people who may not be aware of what you're up to and, and who you are, can you talk about what it is that you do and how you got to this point where you're making these game-changing discoveries and, and making progress in uh, how to improve our cognition today? Yeah, so it's been a, a long path for me. I started my training on the East Coast uh, early in, in, in undergraduate as a biochemistry major, and then 
doing a uh, PhD in neuroscience and, uh, and a medical degree as well, and then going on in, with my clinical training in, in becoming a neurologist, and I did that training at UPenn. Moving then to the West Coast in 2002 uh, to start my research on the human brain. Prior to that, I'd been working on experimental animal neuroscience, which is the most traditional form of neuroscience, and I was very excited about advancing the questions I had about the brain into studies on the human brain. So in, at UC Berkeley, I learned the tools of human neuroscience, functional MRI, EEG, a transcranial magnetic stimulation, and then moved to UCSF with those tools, became the director of the imaging center here, the Neuroscience Imaging Center, and continued to ask questions about plasticity and about um, the fragility of the human cognition mostly in terms of how interference, like distraction and multitasking, degrade performance uh, across a broad range of different abilities from perception to working memory to long-term memory. In 2008, I became inspired by a literature that had been emerging showing that video games, action video games, even consumer video games, and, and most of the literature was on that, could improve cognitive abilities in the young adults that played them. And I had been for many years showing that older adults were quite sensitive to challenges in their environments that degraded how their cognitive abilities were performing at its very highest level. And so I had this idea about can I create a customized video game working with friends of mine from the video game industry, uh, specifically at LucasArts, and then challenge their brains in a video game task that I designed and see if we could lead to improvements in their cognitive abilities and then use all of the neural recordings, which we, you know, that's sort of our expertise in studying how the brain interacts with complex environments like video games to then understand how our games work and how we can use that data to build even better games. So that's sort of how, how it happened. Yeah, and very cool. In other words, you're a, a total badass when it comes to understanding the brain. You have both a PhD in neuroscience and an MD specializing in neurology. And uh, not, and you chose based on some inspiration. You chose to pursue this this avenue of investigating the effects of of video games on preventing cognitive decline, even improving performance. How about we go back a little bit more? And what caused you even to get into science in the first place? Well, um, that's a good question. I pretty much can't remember it. Um, it's sort of at that border. I was around seven, eight years old. Um, no one in my family had been in science. I'm actually the first in my family to even go to college. I grew up in, in Queens um, in New York, and I wasn't exposed to a lot of or any scientists or really doctors growing up. And my father and, and my mother were always very um, passionate about education, and they, and they certainly had a strong appreciation of science. Um, I would say I probably got into the idea of being a scientist through science fiction, reading books, and Carl Sagan's Cosmos uh, TV series, which really captivated me. I remember watching it as a child with, with my parents, and it just really opened up my imagination about what we could learn through the scientific approach and how big the universe was. And so I would say my first love was space and the cosmos, and I thought that would be the direction I would go. But from that moment on, from that very early age, if anyone asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, I would say a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very cool. cool. Love that. Um, And uh, Carl Sagan is is such an inspiration in in many different ways, not even just uh, in the the science realm, um, but also in science fiction and maybe even philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you touched on some of the problems that we're facing today. Uh, Can you paint a picture for the listener who is you know, is fascinated by this stuff, but maybe not making the direct connection between, okay, I know my brain's important, but what exactly do I need to know about the problems that we're facing with cognitive decline and and maybe even improving our our performance so that we're uh, more productive, more creative, better memories? Yeah. So the general sort of scope of the the landscape of of your life, as it may be, in, in relation to cognition, is really one of development, obviously, from an early age, peaking later than we might have appreciated in the past. So it takes uh, a while for the brain to develop, and that continues into the, into the early 20s, that you could see that both on a structural level, if you do MRI scans and, and other types of imaging, and you could see it on a functional level as well in terms of the physiology of brain function, but also in terms of cognitive abilities. Now, it's hard to generalize this, this discussion because cognition is, is vast in terms of the many different assets that, that we have available to us that allow us to interact with our environment. But the one that we focus most on, which we should probably just keep the discussion largely focused on, is what we call in our lab and, and others uh, use this term cognitive control. And what cognitive control is, is it's the set of mental abilities that allow us to interact with our very complex environments based on our goals. So the types of skills we need to navigate this environment include working memory. So when you encounter something, you hold it in mind for short periods of time so that you can then use that again moments later when you need to engage with it. A selective attention, directing the focus of our resources to what's relevant to us and sustaining it over time. And then also what we, what we call a goal management. So if you have more than one goal, which is very often the case, how do you move between them? Do you switch? Do you try to multitask? And these sets of skills together comprise what we call cognitive control. Now, cognitive control abilities develop, as, as I was describing, into the early 20s. And then for, for the most part, um, of course, there are exceptions. There's lots of individual differences. These abilities tend to decline linearly across our lifetimes. So it's not that you retain these abilities at this very high level that you reached when you were in your mid-20s all the way to your 60s or 70s. We actually see, both in our lab and others, the march of, of decline in this of these abilities and in, in their effectiveness from 20s to 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, straight through, pretty, pretty much in a straight line. So that's, uh, that's what has uh, inspired me to bring our lab into the forefront of development and validation on approaches to harness the plasticity of our brain, the ability of our brain to modify itself and to see if we can build tools to help either reverse this process or to decrease the rate of decline. Yeah, yeah. so extremely important. And I, I like that you have it blocked off to the cognitive control, working memory, selective attention, and goal management. And uh, I read an interesting quote the other day in the book Essentialism, and it had a quote from Peter Drucker, who is a management guru. 
and he was talking about when we look back, I can't remember the quote verbatim, but when we look back in history and think about what the big turning point, what the big impact of all this technology that we've developed, it's not going to be airplanes or the internet or anything like that. It's going to be that we're overloaded with all this information and we have no way, or we do have a way of, of dealing with it, but we're having, we're just not prepared. Uh, like you said, goal management. And, uh, you know, what comes to mind immediately is a person texting while driving and they're too into their phones to realize that they're getting into an accident. And that happens all the time. So, what are you saying what you're working on affects? that so that we're more dialed into what our goals are, to what we're paying attention, and what we can keep in our memory. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, that's a, a, a lot there. I'll just, you know, break it down from my perspective. The first piece of what you said is about our limitations and how technology might be aggravating them. And, and that's a, a, a view that, that I hold strongly. Most of our research from our group up until the last couple of years has really not been on enhancement at all but on understanding how interference through distraction and multitasking degrades higher level performance. And we show that with neural recordings, what's going on in the brain and then how it gets worse when we get older. So, you know, now while we're not studying directly the impact of of technology, of modern technology, we do understand from our work that we are quite fragile in terms of how we direct our attention when it comes to noise in the environment and other tasks that compete for it. And this includes even the, you know, the height of these abilities in the early 20s. Even there, we see that there's a sensitivity to this type of interference. And so these are just basic fundamental limitations about you know, how our brain processes information. And we evolved in a certain way to maximize how we uh, engage in the world based on our goals. But we do have limitations across all of the domains of cognitive control. So selective attention, you know, we can focus it, but we are also subject to distraction effects. We're not great at distributing our attention broadly, the type of skill you need when you drive. Uh, we do have a limited capacity on what we could hold in working memory and the fidelity of the information. Um, the resolution is not clearly as high as it is when you're when you're first engaging with it. And then we have many limitations in terms of goal management. We we suffer a decrement in performance every time we move between tasks and when we try to parallel process tasks, what we call multitasking. And so we have all these inherent limitations in how our brain does this. I mean, and everyone has them. And then technology, modern technology, I feel, really puts a stress on this, largely due to the extreme accessibility of information and the fact that it's not even just accessible, but your information sources can ping you and interrupt you despite the fact that you might be engaged in something that demands a high degree of attention. So I do feel that we are under a great deal of pressure. This was the topic that I talked about most frequently in lectures prior to the work, more recent work on enhancement. And um, I have a, a PBS uh, special on, called The Distracted Mind and a book that's pretty much finished that will be coming out next year by that same title that's largely focused on this. Now, I was inspired by these limitations and the challenges technology faced impacts on that to develop solutions or at least, you know, try to address the limitations that we have by building and, and maybe ironically using modern technology as an approach 
to improve our cognitive control abilities and decrease those limitations so that when you have to engage in this incredibly busy world with the modern tech that offers a lot of great advantages and you don't want to be denied it, how can you do so optimally? Yeah, and uh, I think that's so cool. You're taking something that is kind of driving people insane a a little bit or at least highly distracting them and making them unable to focus and prioritize actions that they're doing. And you're using it to, you're using it the other way and, and improving them. It's really cool. So why don't we get into some of what, well, before you do that, you have a, a cool story that, that you shared before. And I'd like you to share it here. Uh, like you just said, you used to focus on the problems of technology and maybe other things. And now you're focusing on some practical applications of instead of focusing on the negative, you're, you're kind of focusing on the positive and, and trying to improve things. And can you talk a little bit about why that switch happened for you? Yeah, you know, I, I have always been under the, you know, un, under the major goal uh, of developing tools and, and trying to have an impact in, in the quality of people's lives. I mean, that's why I did you know, training and and got both an MD and a PhD is that I didn't really just want to study how our brains work and even how they go wrong. But I do want to help people in the end. I mean, that that is my goal. And it's easy to get sort of derailed on a goal like that, because science is so complicated, you know, the the process of being a scientist and, and doing this type of work is so detailed and takes so long, that years and years pass uh, before I realized that I have been you know, sort of reporting the news. And the news is not the happiest news. You know, the news is that our abilities decline as we get older and it impacts the quality of our lives and not really stepping forward, which was my ultimate mission and trying to find ways of correcting that. And I, I, the story that you might be referring to uh, took place, um, at least in my mind, um, when I was giving a lecture at, uh, for the AARP which is, you know, an audience of 60 to 70 year olds, hundreds of older adults uh, listening, public talk, so not a group of scientists and describing to them all these challenges of the older brain. And, you know, when I give a, a comparable lecture to a group of scientists at a university, they're fascinated, right, by the methodology and and how the brain changes. I mean, that's just intellectually interesting to a neuroscientist. Sure, but when sure. you tell when you tell an audience of older people this that aren't scientists, they're mostly like, wow, that's a pretty crappy story. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not quite as exciting as it is to just an intellectually stimulated group of scientists. So I, I realized, you know, as I was giving that talk and, and others like it, that this is not the story that I wanted to be telling my whole life. I want to tell a story that starts with this, but ends with, and here's what we're doing to change that. So based on like, Becoming more engaged in public speaking and interacting with non-scientists and hearing what they really wanted, I moved from the solely from the sole focus on exploration and discovery about how our brains work and how it might change with age to how we can use that expertise to then make an impact. Yeah, and that's fantastic because uh, as you were talking about giving that talk in AARP, uh, my dad is seventy. 71 now and uh i hear i hear those words a lot a lot you know getting older sucks and uh you know focusing on what we can do is just so important and apart from the intellectual curiosity about what actually happens and all the degenerative changes so 
let's talk about how you're solving these problems in Ghazali Lab and how it differs from other approaches. So we we started in 2008 with a game design. I actually came up with this crazy enough while I was sleeping and, and in a dream, uh, sort of the, the framework of that 3D game, that driving game. And I was able to then pull it into my waking life and, and, and bring a little more sophistication to it and propose it to uh, buddies of mine uh, that worked at LucasArts that were, you know, top level AAA video game developers building a game called The Force Unleashed. I said, this is, you know, uh, an idea. It's still early. It's a design for a game that I think will challenge older adults in the domain that they're most fragile uh, in terms of their cognition, which is multitasking. And the hypothesis I had was that if we could apply pressure through game mechanics in an adaptive way, and I'll come back to that in a moment, that we might be able to prove their ability to multitask in this game. And a lot of data would suggest that's the case. You know, even into our later years, we retain plasticity and you through practice, you can improve. But the real hypothesis was that if you could improve the ability to multitask, or if our older adults in our study could, that we would see benefits in other cognitive control domains. So I'd say multitasking falls into the category of goal management. But what I wanted to see was a transfer effect into the working memory and attention domain. And that hypothesis is based on the fact that there are common underlying networks across all of these different sets of abilities. So the idea is you put pressure on one, you build up the strength of the network, and then when it is being applied in a different context, you will see some of the benefits. That was the idea. And so we built that game. It was called NeuroRacer and then did a five-year uh, study. So from the beginning of development all the way to publication was was uh, pretty much five years and published it in Nature, uh, which is as, as big a, a win as we could possibly get as a, as a laboratory. And it, was, it made the cover. Yep, cover of the journal in September of, of 2013. So it was in, incredibly uh, exhilarating. Uh, you know, that happens once in your career as a scientist, and it's, uh, you know, an in total career-changing, life-changing experience, uh, as it has turned out to be. But to us, it was uh, really mostly exciting from the perspective that it, it empowered us. It, it showed us that you can do something a little crazy, like building a video game and trying to use it as a cognitive enhancement tool uh, in older adults and do a placebo-controlled study with neural measures to uh, not just see the effects, but to understand the mechanisms of them and show that we were able to accomplish what our goals were and, and, and document a benefit outside of the game into those other abilities multitask uh, from multitasking in the game to sustained attention and working memory for faces, something incredibly different from the game and an effect that we did not see in our control groups. So to us, we were like, wow, we have an entire new methodology here that no one's really done to this level where you build a game customized based on our understanding about the brain and based on our understanding about the cognitive weaknesses of a certain group. In this case, it happens to be older adults, but it could be applied more generally than that. And then you do a careful placebo-controlled study, just like you would do if this was a drug study, and figure out, does this work? And from there, we get a signal. I would say that our nature paper, as excited we are about it, is really a signal, right? It's not, it's not the level of study with the large numbers that you make prescriptive advice about, but it is enough in my mind to be 
excited that there is something here and then encourage future studies to both replicate that and take it to the next level, look at it in different populations, understand dosage effects, understand effects on individual differences. Some people respond more than others. Some don't respond at all. So there's a tremendous amount of work that it just opens up. But it's still the type of thing that empowered my laboratory to then say, okay, this is not, we're not going to be a one-hit wonder, right? We did this, we're, we're proud of it, but we want to use this to then take us to the next level, build even better games that bring on other forms of technology besides just video games. And so from the point of view of other types of interactive media approaches, motion capture, virtual reality, augmented reality, wearables, bringing other physiology into the mix, neurofeedback, brain stimulation, how do we put all of this together and build the next generation of tools that no one has ever seen before and then validate them in a similar approach? So that's sort of what happened with that nature paper, that transition in our lab from not being fully focused anymore on the basic questions, but to use the basic understanding to then go to the next level in this domain. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, you're doing a fantastic job of explaining it over this limited medium, which is audio. But if you want to check out what Dr. Ghazali is up to, go to Ghazali Lab, G-A-Z-Z-A-L-E-Y Lab dot U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. And you will see, I highly recommend you check out his select lectures and go to the GTC keynote presentation from uh, 2014, you will get to see all the stuff that Adam is talking about on stage with some beautiful visuals to to illustrate exactly what you're talking about, as well as the visual representation of the results of your research. It's definitely um, a little bit of a challenge not to have uh, visuals with me, but uh, you know, I, I, at least I hope that you know the the the, the big messages are, are coming across in this format. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I would love to, uh, yeah, we, we can maybe do that again in the future and, and try some of that. But, uh, you know, thousands of people will hear this and hopefully go and check out what you're up to and, uh, you know, see what's going on. And, and you, you're doing such awesome stuff with the Oculus Rift, which is the virtual reality platform, uh, visor, if you will. And, uh, you know, going into, can you talk about some of the really cool stuff that you're doing with the glass brain, with uh, rhythmicity, and uh, talk about a little bit of, uh, you know, what you did in that presentation? Yeah, okay. Um, there's a lot. So over the last I guess two or three years, we've built a lot of technology, which is you know, very unusual for an academic lab at a university to, to develop so much. And, and um, it's, it's been an exciting road, uh, one that I never, ever envisioned, you know, being an inventor and filing patents and working with developers and game designers. And it's been an amazing journey so far. Uh, so there's a, a lot in the lab. I'll, I'll try to break down some of of them. Uh, maybe I'll start with the ones from that GTC keynote. So in addition to all the games that we're creating, and I, I'll, I'd certainly be happy to give a quick tour of those, but we, we have another technology that we've been working on. It's called the Glass Brain, and um, it's easily uh, searchable, and you'll see plenty of videos online and descriptions, and um, it's been in many museums now and documentaries. It's really had a pretty exciting life of its own. It won a Vizzy Award from Popular Science last year, and um, it's it's been great. And 
essentially what it is is a, is a brain visualization at its core. It was work that we uh, initiated in a lab and then did in collaboration with others, including uh, the Swartz Center at UCSD, a company Syntrogy, who's now uh, supplying a lot of the EEG algorithms behind that, and then NVIDIA, uh, the GPU company that we work with to try to speed up a lot of the processing that you might see in a visualization. And so it's essentially what it is, it's, it's a combination of MRI and EEG. The MRI is all done as pre-processing, and the EEG is essentially real-time processing. Uh, we've been able to get a lot of our computations down to 200 milliseconds. So just you know, two-tenths of a second after the event occurs in the brain, we can visualize those electrical uh, signatures uh, as different rhythms and different communications between areas on the structure of the brain that we obtain from the MRI. So it's, it's not a model. It's a, it's, you know, a customized view of a person's brain in real time, interacting with whatever they might be doing at the time. Um, and it's, uh, it, it has a lot of work to be done in terms of validating it and, um, and, and figuring out what to use it for. We're doing that right now, but it, it has been an exciting, at least proof of concept, of what you can do with some modern technology. Uh, another interesting piece of it is that we bring all of that three-dimensional data into the Unity game engine, where we do all of our development, game development, and we're able to, with a joystick, an Xbox joystick, navigate the brain in, in real time, which is incredibly exciting. And so that's what you'll see in that video. We uh, have a virtual reality tour uh, in the Oculus Rift of Mickey Hart's brain. Mickey Hart is a good uh, friend of mine and mentor, and he's the uh, percussionist from The Grateful Dead. And on stage, what we were able to pull off in front of, you know, two, 3,000 people was a sort of double virtual reality presentation. Mickey was wearing a rift, and he was playing a rhythm video game that we developed um, that has advanced now. Uh, it's called Rhythmicity. And he's playing the game, so he can't see the audience. And while he's playing, he's wearing a 64-channel mobile EEG set that was custom-made for us by a group called Cognionics. And he, it's recording his brain activity while he plays the game. And Tim Mullen, uh, one of the scientists that's involved in this project, he's wearing an Oculus Rift. And in real time, he's flying through Mickey's brain. So I describe it as sort of a neuro-nested dolls. You have Mickey's uh, virtual representation of his drumming game, and then you have Tim's virtual representation, which is Mickey's brain. Uh, so it was uh, pretty exciting to pull that off live. And, you know, it opens up a lot of potential to use this technology to elevate brain function itself. So where we're going with the glass brain in the over years since that demo has taken place is uh, some really unique experiments to take real-time brain data from the glass brain and feed it into the mechanics of some pretty simple video games so that essentially you're guiding the gameplay with, uh, with your brain activity. Not in terms of moving things, but in terms of the game responding to how your brain is performing and thus being able to selectively challenge you in a way that boosts the weaknesses that we may see in, in how your brain is processing information. So it's a very new approach to thinking about neurofeedback. Yeah, and wow, that that just sounds so amazing. And uh, besides of all the the practical applications and ramifications of what you're doing, I think w one thing is that you're making brain science cool and visual. And uh, as you know, as maybe non scientific as that is, you know, kids are really not into 
uh, the dry lectures. And, and I think what you're doing just has that, you know, that cool factor to it. And now it's video games and so many people love video games and, and myself included. It's just amazing. Now, Adam, one of the, actually one of my listeners heard your interview with Tim. And one of the things he said, he's like, well, are, where are these available? Where can I experience these games, the glass brain, you know, I, obviously the Oculus Rift is, I guess, available, but with your games, where can people experience them? Or is that not yet available? Yeah, this is, this is a frustration for everyone, including myself and my lab, in that we, we have a, a very sort of unique positioning here. So we're building these uh, tools. We're very excited about them. We're, you know, optimistic, but I'd say we're cautiously optimistic. And as, you know, primary investigators in this space, you know, the, the group, the type of, you know, team that we have uh, writing peer-reviewed papers, hopefully in the, in the world's best journals, we're, we're very conservative with, uh, with our games and putting them out there. We, we want to do um, a lot of research, more than anyone has ever done, um, at least from our perspective, in terms of understanding how they work, where their limitations are, where potential side effects might exist, and really feel confident at the highest level when these games reach the, you know, the popular, you know, the public sector and people's lives, whether it be therapeutic or education or even the consumer market, that we, we've done our homework up front. So I know this is a frustration because people want them right now. And we're working uh, as diligently and as rapidly as we can. We, it's not going to be as long as developing drugs, which are you know at least a 10-year pathway. So we hope over the next several years, uh, people will start seeing them. But uh, in the meanwhile, we hope everyone respects that we're doing this to create things that people will have confidence when they finally interact with it, that the data supports the claims that are being made. That's our goal. We do not want to overinflate the claims and I feel very strongly about our need to look forward in, you know, an enthusiastic way, but also to be rigorous about our approach here. Yeah, you want to do real science, in other words, not just uh, come up with something that seems a little cool, may have somewhat of a positive effect, but nobody's sure because there hasn't been strict measurements done using the scientific method and, you know, reproducible results. And uh, yeah, but in other words, all that cool stuff Adam just talked about, you can't, <laughs> you can't experience. Uh, but, you know, there's, uh, it, it's, I don't think it's going to be all that long until, until we start making those transfers. And, you know, there's uh, a lot that, you know, people can do in the meanwhile to keep themselves healthy and to keep their brains healthy. You know, the, the basic underlying message here is that, it, it, you know, it's about interactivity with your environment and that our brains are plastic and that challenging yourself at the highest level, you know, as much as you can is, is positive. We're just coming up with some really very targeted approaches to do it. But there's not, it's not magic in that sense that it's, it's creating something that, is impossible to experience even in your daily life. So, you know, it's, it's not like it's not available at all. It's just that we're going to, you know, bring it to hopefully, you know, to a higher level than is possible through just standard interactions. But, you know, that's, 
that's what I would say people should do in the meanwhile. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just giving you a hard time and giving uh, the listeners a hard time. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to know what's going on in the future, what the promises of technology holds, especially with you know Alzheimer's being at such a sky high uh, rate right now. I mean, my my grandfather, my grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's. It was really, really difficult to watch them degenerate. And knowing that people like you are working on the technology to address these specific issues is is just so important. And plus, technology is cool. It's uh, how we're speaking to each other right now. But like you alluded to, Adam, I'd love to get into some things about some more, let's get a little more practical now. And let's first address maybe some of the issues health-wise, because you are a medical doctor as well as a uh, PhD in neuroscience. Can we, you know, Robert Sapolsky, a, a neurobio, a very famous neurobiologist, talked about stress in the brain. I was listening to an interview the other day with a, another doctor talking about sleep and how important it is to you know, prevent cognitive decline and also improve performance. Can you talk a little bit about the relation to health and some practical steps that we can take, maybe diet-wise, maybe uh, exercise-wise, to ensure that we're not just working our bodies, but but doing something for our brain? Yeah, it's, it's a great discussion to have. You know, we, we've, as, the, as a medical profession, when I'm saying we, we've not done a great job in terms of promoting the lifestyle steps that people can take to induce brain health and maintain brain health throughout their lives. The cardiology field has done a way better job, right? They, they will think about physical exercise and nutrition right up there with the prescribing of medications. On the mental health side, both psychiatry and neurology has not done quite as well, uh, where there is, in my mind, a little bit of an over-preoccupation with pharmaceuticals and not enough attention to the things that people could do in their daily lives to keep their brains healthy. The interesting part is that it's not very different than the cardiology uh, recommendations, and that shouldn't be so surprising because you know our brains are part of our body as well. And so things that are good for your body are, are, you know, certainly good for your brain as well. And so the lifestyle approaches that everyone should take that, that's interested in their brain health at any age are some of the things you, you mentioned already. So, you know, the, the landscape looks like physical exercise. I would say cognitive exercise in some way, and that doesn't necessarily have to be formalized, but it could be in terms of challenge stress management to some degree, not the elimination of stress, and we could come back to that. Sleep management, of course. Nutrition, um, very high. And I would say some type of mindfulness uh, practice in some way, whether it's more traditional, uh, you know, contemplative practices or, or other ways of, uh, of focusing um, in, a, in a less sort of busy way than we normally do. And I would say that all of those elements, which are important as much for heart health as it is brain health, should be a part of everyone's daily practice if this type of thing is important to you. Yeah. And, you know, I I interviewed someone on testosterone and uh, how we could maximize it and and uh, what he basically said, and, and I, I'm curious, I think you'll agree, but I'm curious 
about your opinion on this. He basically said, well, testosterone is made by cells, right? Uh, the Leydig cells in your testes. And basically what he said, well, what's good for any cell uh, is good for those cells and brain cells are brain cells. So that said, so we need to have this general approach to getting things that make our cells healthy. I'm curious to know what you think that is, but also... And I realize this is not necessarily the research you're conducting in your lab, but just, you know, uh, just off a conversation and you are a uh, very knowledgeable person having, uh, you, you know, your, your academic background. What are the general recommendations that you see that are validated by science? And also, more specifically, is there anything that we can do to affect our neurons, our brain cells yeah, I would say, you know, everything in that lifestyle list that I just went through, there is some evidence and it varies. And some of that's just the challenge of, of those particular types of experiments to do um, will, will, will benefit the brain. I would say that the highest level of evidence across all the various approaches would fall to physical exercise. And there's lots of reasons for that. It doesn't necessarily mean physical exercise is the most important. But those studies have been well done. They're, they're in some ways easier to control, certainly, than things like nutrition studies and other, uh, other forms of, of, of intervention. Um, but that is the data, to me, that's the most convincing in terms of brain health. Aerobic, certainly, and even strength training, there's data. And that's, uh, I really think, has reached the level that I would say is prescriptive. In other words, even as a physician, I'd feel entirely comfortable saying, this is what you should be doing. You should be engaged in some type of physical exercise if, if maintaining a healthy brain uh, for your life is important to you throughout your life. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be as intense as people might believe. I mean, even even walking, especially as an older adult, has been shown to have benefits. But there is certainly a, what I would describe as a signal, meaning that there's something in the literature, in the data, even if it doesn't reach the very highest level of, of you know placebo, randomized controlled trials, enough to say that all of those lifestyle approaches, you know, from nutrition to, to cognitive challenge to stress, you know, management to mindfulness um, slash meditation and, and nutritional should be part of what we think about when we approach the, the challenges of, of keeping our brains healthy for the long haul. Uh, so I try to engage in all of them. And although, you know, you're right, this does stretch beyond what we do in the lab is no lab can do everything. We do try to unite these ideas with what we do. So some of our new games like Body Brain Trainer, which is a physical fitness meets cognitive fitness motion capture game, does try to unite the world of cognitive training and physical training. We have a mindfulness inspired game called MetaTrain which tries to basically integrate many of those principles from concentrative meditation with our video game mechanics. So the idea there is that even using the very uh, motivating, inspiring, and, and immersive environment that we create with video games, we can help accomplish some of the bigger goals of bringing in a broad range of lifestyle approaches like physical fitness and like mindfulness and stress management. So that is one of our hopes. And now as I, and you probably know this, our training on many of our games, it's actually helping me have this broader lifestyle approach that we were just talking about. Yes. The neuro man experiment. Yeah, exactly. Week three right now. Cool. 
Yeah, I would like to get to that in a second, but I want to ask you a question about Body Brain Trainer because yeah. in your interview with Tim Ferriss, you said something really interesting. Body, the idea of the body brain trainer, as I understand it, was that you're combining cognitive exercises with physical exercise to see if there is maybe a synergistic effect from the two, if there's any difference. But the idea there, I guess, is to see if you know you get better results doing both. And you said you keep people at their anaerobic threshold. And uh, what's really fascinating about that is... Uh, uh, do you are you aware of Stephen Kotler? Have you heard him? He wrote a book on uh, ri- called Rise of Superman. It's on the concept of flow. I I know I haven't read the book, but I am aware aware of it. Yes. Okay. Someone was saying something to him about you know this specific heart rate range, and I don't want to get too detailed in it because that's a whole nother book of worms, uh, can of worms rather. But from what you've seen right now, is there like a, a, a specific, you know, why is it at the anaerobic threshold? Is Do you see that as being the sweet spot for possibly improving the brain through physical exercise? Yeah. So, you know, when we, when we build our games and, you know, this game in particular took us a couple of years to build, we have a very, a very multidisciplinary team, right? So from the game side, designers, engineers, UI experts, uh, interactive media programmers, you know, here we have full body motion capture, all of the scientists on the team that are driving the underlying engine creation so that it, they're targeted for this. And then we bring in domain experts like so for our meditation mindfulness game was Jack Hornfield, who's a leader in, in, in that field. And here we we had different uh, med- physical exercise experts, uh, an exercise physiologist like Chris Thompson, who's worked with us very closely. And what we did here in terms of selecting the domain was we had each of our participants do a VO2 max beforehand. And the VO2 max is where we can see the different ranges. So we could essentially look at how close to your maximal heart rate you are exerting yourself in middle of gameplay. And we were really driven by the literature on physical exercise and brain health, showing that it was pretty high-intensity type of engagement that seemed to be most correlated with brain improvement, brain function improvement. And so we do drive pretty high heart rates on the game. I played it this morning, and I felt the burden of that. I'm, my minimum now <laughs> is, is 130. So, you know, I have to work uh, pretty hard to get up there. Um, my max is 185. So, uh, from, from the VO2 testing, uh, VO2 max testing. So that was really built on the literature that you do need to push people. Sometimes, you know, we go as high as 80 to 90% of max on our, on our games. Wow. That is, that is really fascinating. And yeah, maybe we can talk after about maybe doing some type of brain optimization roundtable. I'd love to be a part of that because Steven's been on the show several times and uh, what, what you both seem to be doing seems to be uh, very compatible, meaning you're looking at sensory and in physical ways of affecting the brain as opposed to looking at supplements and, and drugs. Yeah. But yeah, that's cool. And I have a little, so we talked about the metabolic, that's really the metabolic part of exercise in, in this high heart rate range and yeah. all the uh, metabolic byproducts and, and changes that occur. I have a little bit of a hypothesis and you know I use that word loosely, but uh, I'm in the fitness business Although at one time I did want to become a cognitive neuroscientist uh, many, many years ago. But there's, in, in my industry, there's a lot of focus on, hey, 
do this rep range because it builds muscle, use this compound exercise because it builds a lot of muscle and do deadlifts and do bench presses because it builds strength, it builds muscle. Then there's kind of a different methodology out there and you know you can see it in in gymnastic style training i know you had a pair a, a pair of parallettes underneath your desk there maybe we can yeah. get into that for a second but also there's all these odd implement trainings like if you see the company on it I'm, i don't know if you for uh you're familiar with them or not no okay well they sell like kettlebells and they sell club uh-huh. bells and in other words what you would be doing is a more complex movement. Instead of a squat with a bar on your back, you're going to be doing like a, a squat that is asymmetrical because you're holding this mace on one side of your body and then you stand up and swing it to the other side. And my thinking is, and, and there's, and here's a lot of people in the fitness industry give those people flack and say, you know, well, that's not optimal for building muscle, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, are we missing the improved cognitive functions? The fact that you have to be more aware of what you're doing. Is there any merit to that based on what you know? Well, you know, it's sort of what our research question is in a way. What are the benefits of being engaged physically and cognitively in a, in a deep way simultaneously, right? So, you know, I go to the gym and do a whole bunch of different uh, weight training as well as, you know, other, uh, you know, aerobic activities. But um, I am definitely becoming more excited about more natural type of movements like the parallel uh, type of exercises. And although I do some pretty repetitive standard weight training still, I do think that, you know, if, if, you, if you don't have something like BBT, which is designed to do exactly that, it makes sense to me. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that doing the type of physical exercises that demand some cognitive engagement could have a bigger benefit than those that don't. But that's essentially what we're addressing in the BBT study, is to, is to really document that with a careful methodology and all the control groups. It's a forearm study to understand what does that intersection look like. What, one other just component of this that I should mention, we do think that the physical fitness element will benefit the cognitive goals, the cognitive enhancement goals. And some of that most certainly will be to the benefits of physical fitness itself, you know, BDNF and other factors that have been shown to be involved in the benefits of being physically fit on the brain. But I also have a hypothesis, which will be harder to test, but something I'm very interested in is that it's not just the fitness aspects of being physical that will have the benefit on the cognitive performance, but the act of being embodied in your cognitive training. So I feel that evolutionarily, the pressures for our cognitive development came through physical situations, right? Hunting for food or escaping prey, jumping through the trees. Like we built our cognitive systems in a physical world that we were embodied in. And my idea is that the act of training your, your brain and your cognitive abilities just using your eyeballs and thumbs will not be as effective as training your brain in a more natural way of being physically embodied in that training. So that's an idea, but it's something that I hope over the years we'll be able to tease apart. Oh, man. Oh. 
I'm so excited when you're talking about this stuff and I would love to do a follow-up when, when you come out with your book and when, when you get more research data on trying out these things, because I think that is a place where the fitness industry is completely missing. They're, they, they're just missing it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of benefit to that. I've noticed it personally, of course, N equals one study, but so, so anyway, that's fascinating. Um, I would like to get into some listener questions because I told some of the listeners that I was interviewing you today and they came up with some really interesting questions. Sure. Okay. Here's one that's pretty interesting. And I'll preface this by saying for, for the listeners who may not know, you, you've probably heard of your central nervous system, your brain, your spinal cord. You may have even heard of your autonomic nervous system, uh, the, the parasympathetic, sympathetic, you know, fight or flight part of your nervous system. But there's also something called the enteric nervous system, which is in your gut. I've watched other doctors talk about how maybe the majority of your serotonin production is going on in, in, in this enteric nervous system. Can you talk about the relationship between the enteric nervous system and health? Well, just very, very briefly, as someone that doesn't actually do research on that area, I mean, the microbiome and the influence of this incredible ecosystem that lives inside our gut has now been shown to be related to behaviors. And it's, it's amazingly important research. It's fascinating. I certainly haven't gotten to the point where we've connected it with the type of cognitive and also autonomic type of systems that we study. But, you know, it just, it just shows you this is a, a very, very complex dynamic system. And here, you know, in this year, you, you feel like we've been working on the brain and the body for a long time as scientists. But there's still things being discovered. And the biggest challenge of all is how all of these systems interact with each other. And that's just a very complex mathematical multivariate problem for us to solve. And so I couldn't speak more than to say that I'm aware of it. And at one point, I hope it intersects with my world. Awesome. Okay, next question. Maybe you can ask him about the default mode network and its role in focus and motivation. And does a morning routine help develop or strengthen the DFM in a manner like meditation? Yeah, so the default mode network, um, it's, a, it's an interesting name. It might be a misnomer in some ways, but uh, it's essentially a, a network of brain areas, usually medial brain areas like the medial prefrontal cortex and other structures down the midline including in the back of the brain, but essentially what it is uh, areas that become more activated when you're not doing the standard sort of external goal-directed behavior that defines a lot of your life. It was, it was found in, in some ways almost serendipitously by looking at brain scans and, and saying, during those periods of time when we ask you to rest in the scanner, what is more active there than during the task, which is where the majority of focus had been uh, uh, from the cognitive neuroscience field? And we find that there's a flip. There's this attention network that's activated more lateral on the sides of your brain, like the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and, and other areas of the lateral parietal cortex that are engaged when you're doing a task-based activity. And then when you're doing more internal reflection, either thinking about past events or imagining future events, more self-directed activities, you see these midline structures known as now known as the default mode network activated. So there is a really complex relationship between the different networks and how they move between each other, and there are many labs that are studying this. 
and the relation of mindfulness and other practices that the reader is alluding to and how it intersects with building these different networks is still under investigation. And I haven't really read anything convincingly that puts together the whole story, but it is at least thought that those type of meditation practices can help build the skills that allow you to at least move between these different types of networks. Yeah. So in other words, uh, just meditate and and maybe not overanalyze it too much because there's nothing. We're we're studying it, you know, I mean, it's, you know the meditation field is 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 maturing you know from a neuroscience point of view dramatically and we're learning more about how the practices do change brain function and structure but there are so many different types of practices very frequently they're very hard to control in those studies and so it's hard to know exactly what elements of the practices might be doing changes or different types of changes. And so our MetaTrain study, where we built a game that uses an algorithm so that we could focus on what we think of as at least one of the active ingredients of that practice, might allow us to get even a better look at what's going on inside the brain. And we'll certainly be looking at how the default mode network and attention networks change in response to a six-week Mediterranean program. Interesting. Would love to hear the follow up on that. Yeah, I'm not a big meditator myself, and I, I like to meditate, if you will, through physical activity. And I would love to see how this game could maybe get people who are like me and not not willing to sit there and ohm or or you yeah, know just well, do deep breathing. Uh, yeah, to, me, and like me also, you know, I, I also did not meditate. Um, I approached the topic very intellectually from my understanding about about the meditation practice and also understanding about the brain systems involved. And now I've been I'm in my third week of Meditrain because it's part of the, the Neuroman uh, project that I'm doing. So uh, five days a week for 30 minutes, I stop the flow of activities in my day and and engage in this iPad game that that I helped develop. So it's uh, it's been an interesting ride for myself as well care to share the uh, preliminary results? Well, you know, we have full studies going on that are controlled to look at what actually happens in a control way. But from my, you know, the reason I'm doing this, this Neuroman project, which uh, simply is engaging in three of of our games over time. My girlfriend, Joe, is actually on the NeuroWoman project, which is pretty fun for both of us. She's doing the same training I'm doing. The act of stopping my day to sit in this focused setting on my breath is an incredible change from what I normally have ever done. And I find my, I mean, it's hard to do. I have to schedule it. I literally put it in my packed day. I'm, you know, booked for 12 hours every single day. And so it's sitting in there and I protect it uh, or else it would evaporate. And (laughs) I, I find it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Actually, yesterday I was really looking forward to it. And it, it's hard. It is It is work. It is as much work as going to the gym. We call it Mediterranean for a reason. It is training. It is not a 30-minute period of relaxation. It takes work to focus on one thing and not have your mind think, oh, my God, I didn't do that yet, um, especially in middle of a day. So it's going to be a learning experience. I have, uh, you know, another month to go. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Excellent. And do you have time for one more question? Yep. Just one more. Yep. Okay. You got it. And probably the most powerful question yet, are genetics a death sentence referring to 
cognitive decline and, or how much is in our power to prevent dementia or the delay of onset of Alzheimer's. I watched my 86-year-old grandfather decline in physical activity and saw an even more dramatic decline in his cognitive abilities. So I guess there's two parts to that, but can you share your answer? Yeah, I mean, it's on, you know, we, we know very well that genetics is a big influencer of our health. That's no surprise. And it could be more or less, depending on what your genes look like. Um, You could be more or less predisposed to something like Alzheimer's or another condition. But we also know that we're plastic. And we always have appreciated that environment interaction can influence our health as well. So, you know, it's it's, both are going on. You have these forces that were sort of uh, predetermined in you. And even genetics has epigenetic phenomena that can change as well. And then you have all the influences of the plasticity of your body where all those lifestyle measures and the things that we're developing in the lab can help control this. Now, the degree to which this can happen is still, you know, very much an open-ended question. We have data that shows us that there is, in addition to plasticity, this other phenomenon that we call cognitive reserve, meaning that if you build a stronger brain, And that could be things just like being bilingual or engaging in music training when you're young, that when you age, you seem to have more resilience in some ways to pathology, like, for example, that which might be associated with Alzheimer's disease. Does it mean that you'll never get Alzheimer's disease? Probably not. (laughs) Um, we, We don't really see reversals necessarily, and that's still a big challenge of the field, but it may delay the functional consequences of a disease. And depending on how long it delays it, you may die of something else. I mean, you're inevitable to die of something. So it's it's a complex question. The answer is that it's both, that you shouldn't feel that your genetics, for the most part, um, unless they're quite extreme, what's going on genetically, which happens, is a death sentence, that you should be empowered to know that you do have a good amount of control over your own health through how you live and that there are a lot of uh, smart people around the world that are working on trying to figure out the best way that your own engagement with your life can maximize your health for as long as, as you stay alive. Yeah, I love it. Adam Ghazali, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and most importantly, your time today. I know everyone got a lot of value from listening to you and they're excited about the future and what it holds and what you're up to in the world. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to have these discussions. And even while I have them, I I learn more. I'm constantly exploring things that I think about in these type of interactions. So I thank you for having me and I hope your listeners enjoyed it. My pleasure. And I hope to speak with you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon.